Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Voices Podcast. Subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player to automatically get our new episodes, and visit us on our website at www.newvoices.com for our archives and magazine stories. All of our work is made possible with the generous support of our patrons, so thank you. If you're wondering who this new voice is, my name is Salarina Ho. I'm a journalist and writer, and I'll be hosting today's episode from Toronto, Canada, while my guest is joining us from across the Atlantic all the way from Sweden. I'm excited to welcome American Taiwanese journalist Clarissa Wei to our show. You may have first discovered her like I did from her award-winning gold thread videos on food and cultures of China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. Her work has appeared in a number of publications, including The New Yorker, where she wrote about the end of the zero COVID in Taiwan, a culinary guide through Taipei for National Geographic, and for Vice, the politics of COVID, the Trump fan base in Taiwan, and the island's uncertain relationship with the U.S. after Trump. She is also the host and producer of Climate Cuisine, a podcast that explores sustainable crops and the many wondrous ways they are consumed and used by different cultures around the world. She is currently working on her cookbook, Made in Taiwan, Recipes from the People, a celebration of Taiwan's unique culinary identity, and we'll definitely hear more about that later. Hi, Clarissa. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. So first off, congratulations are in order. I know you uh, technically got married in 2019, and uh, you're in Sweden now for a belated celebration. Is that right? Yeah, we just had our wedding ceremony, so it's been lovely. Congratulations. I saw the... uh, gorgeous photos you posted on Twitter and how um, your only request to the venue was spectacular seasonal food. Yeah, I mean, that's (laughs) all I really care about. (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine. I remember being uh, too preoccupied uh, with the schedule at mine and barely ate anything, even though food was a big deal for me as well. Did you get (laughs) to take time and, and really savor the food at your own wedding? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was a sit down five course meal. So you sort of had a savor everything. We set it up for that. Right. That's great. So you were born and raised in LA. What prompted you to move to Taiwan during a global pandemic? Yeah, I was in Hong Kong for two years prior to that. For my job, I was a reporter covering the food of China. And I didn't move to Taiwan purposely during the global pandemic. It was just something my husband and I planned. Um, Hong Kong was lovely, but Taiwan is where my family is from, and it's just a much more chill and slower pace of life for me. And I wanted to go back to freelance writing and freelance video production. So it was a natural step. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we didn't plan to do it in 2020, but it just happened to coincide with the global pandemic. Right. So I wanted to kind of start off a little bit about, you know, food and, and some of the stuff that you'd covered before. Um, I could ask you questions about your gold thread videos alone for hours. We're in Fujian in eastern China. The province is known for these thin wheat noodles called mi sua, which are entirely handmade and sun-dried. You don't know the scientific name of this yet, but he says it's hongjin, which just means red mushroom. The good thing about this part of Yunnan is that most people know a thing or two about mushrooms, so we're going to fact check this with the ladies downstairs. They were great at capturing some of the the essences of of a place and a food in just a few minutes. How did you find your stories and the the people in it? 
Yeah, a lot of it in the beginning was a couple of years prior, I had backpacked through China by myself and met people in my travels. So I sort of just went with the people I met and then expanded those networks and then sort of went from there. I think my best stories are always just people I met in my travels or they introduced me to a friend of a friend. Mm-hmm. So I got to do that for two years and it was really wonderful to be able to take some of these people that I had met and tell their story to the rest of the world. Right. And I'm always fascinated by the process behind the stories. I know you filed, I think you said over 100 videos over a relatively short period. How long did each one take? So a turnaround time would be around two weeks, at most three. So it was a pretty quick turnaround time, given that these are original short videos that we're producing flying to the location and doing all of that. And this doesn't even include the research process or reaching out to people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's the rough timeline, two to three weeks. Right. That seems extremely intense, especially just being on the road constantly as well. Yeah, it really was intense, but I'm glad I got to do it literally right before the pandemic. Right, for sure. And you filed from every province in China. Is there any region you haven't been to that you still want to explore? Yeah, I haven't been to every region, but I actually haven't been to the city of Xi'an, which is really sad because it's such a food mecca. They have just so many culinary delicacies that I've tried in LA by way of the diaspora, but I haven't been able to try in Xi'an itself. So hopefully I'll be able to make it there in my lifetime, but we'll see with the border closures and all of that. Right. How long that will last. Yeah. And... From there, I guess, do you have like favorite stories or food discoveries that have really stayed with you over the over the years? Not so much that I haven't made in the form of a video. <laughs> um, but I think what was just so notable was hanging out with people like regular people in China and sharing their food. I think so much of the news about China is dominated by geopolitics. And it's always at such a macro level, but being able to just hang out with normal people, drink tea in the countryside or go hiking and just bond about, you know, normal things I would with my friends in Taiwan or Sweden or L.A. That was really lovely. And again, because of the border closures, because of all of these political things, like I don't know when the next time I can go back is. So I think just having those memories and experiences were very invaluable to me. And I know the the climate's really changed a lot in China, even outside of the pandemic. Do you think you would be able to tell the same sort of stories that you did before? You know, just sometimes I know even the, the most innocuous things can, can come under scrutiny. What's your impression of that? Yeah, I mean, I was facing, like, people wanted me to register with the local police office when I went to film the story of noodles or their food, and I wasn't looking for a political story. I really just wanted the story of their food. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's not impossible, but it is getting increasingly difficult, especially if you are from a Western country. And it wasn't as easy as it was back in 2015 or 16 when I was there just wandering around by myself. I don't think I can do that right now. Right. And something I wanted to ask, I think these days there's a lot more awareness about cultural appropriation, being sensitive to 
the cultural origins of a certain dish and that sort of thing. But there's definitely this notion around how food is not stagnant, that it's ever evolving. And you and you kind of wrote about this for Epicurious and, and Chinese food, where you talked about the idea of authenticity and why a lot of chefs kind of shy away from that word. Can you talk a little bit more about that and, and maybe distinguish I guess distinguishing perhaps that that fine line or zone between fusion and appropriation. Yeah, I think the whole concept of, and you see this a lot in the diaspora, a certain thing is not authentic or a certain thing is authentic is very dependent on whoever is uttering that statement. And I get this need to protect the food that your mom made or reminds you of, you know, your ancestral hometown. But the thing is, food is constantly evolving. And I think, yeah, there is a fine line between appropriation and appreciation. And to do that, it's to sort of tell the story of the food. And I think if someone has a valid story that, you know, their grandfather put this and that ingredient together and created this weird dish. And even though no one has ever seen it except for your grandfather, that dish is valid because it's part of your family history. And I don't think people realize that or hopefully they're just starting to realize it. And it's always just been very frustrating for me as a food writer when you write about something and people are like, that's not right because it doesn't reflect my experience. But everyone's experience with food is very different. Mm-hmm. And do you think that's kind of an unpopular take these days or is it just a kind of depends on the audience? I think it's it's not so much an unpopular take. I don't think people really think about it. I think people, especially on social media, have a knee-jerk reaction where they just want to criticize other people and they think their reality is the end-all be-all. And my hope is to open the discussion a little bit more and have people really examine what the word authenticity even means. Yeah. And in your view, what are some of the biggest misconceptions about Chinese food or even Chinese food versus Taiwanese food or Chinese food among the diaspora? Well, on that second point, I think Taiwanese cuisine is constantly being conflated with Chinese food. And I get that because of our historical background and the fact that the majority of people in Taiwan are of Chinese descent, but it is of my strong opinion that it is its own cuisine because we are our own country. And then on the topic of Chinese food, I think a lot of Americans or people in the Western world see Chinese food as this monolith. Like they think of Chinese food and they have these like five dishes that come to mind, you know, maybe beef and broccoli stir fry, at best like a mapo dofu. But it is a country with more than a billion people and so many provinces and so many geographic differences. And it is just lush. And I wish people could see that diversity. Mm -hmm. And I think you tried to kind of touch on that a little bit with the map that you did for Epicurious. Is that right? With the, uh, the different regional foods? Exactly. Yeah. And you can't really get that anywhere else besides China. I mean, maybe, you know, in Vancouver or Toronto or Los Angeles would probably have some regional Chinese food. But outside of that, maybe a little bit in New York. But you can't really see this diversity unless you go to China. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, decades ago, 
in Toronto, certainly the the food that was very predominant here was Cantonese food, a lot of immigrants from Hong Kong and that kind of thing. But definitely in the last, you know, 10, 20 years, maybe even longer, that diversity in terms of regional foods has exploded in, in Toronto. And you can probably find something from everywhere in the city if you if you look hard enough, for sure. Let's talk about the cookbook that you're working on. Is that still slated to come out a year from now in fall of 2023? Yep, it's coming out fall 2023. I've submitted the manuscript, like everything's on schedule. So I'm really excited for that, obviously, because I've been working on it nonstop for the last year. That's amazing. And can you share a little bit about how this book came to be and, and what made you want to do it? Yeah, um, I think for most of my career, I've been covering Chinese cuisine because it's just a big topic that everyone has heard of. And whenever I want to talk about the food of Taiwan, it's usually lumped into the broad umbrella of Chinese cuisine or it's kind of a niche thing on its own. And then I just felt like enough was enough. I need to highlight the food where my family is from. And the more I dug into it and the more I thought about it, I really realized that the cuisines are completely different. You know, while we have similar cultural ancestry and traditions and share the same language, years of isolation and just also geographic separation, of course, by virtue of Taiwan being an island, has just created a cuisine that's so distinct. And people don't really realize that because... A lot of the Taiwanese diaspora food that you see in the West are from families who immigrated to Taiwan rather recently in the 1940s or 50s. But other folks like my family, we've been in Taiwan for over 200 years. We have dishes that you don't see anywhere else in the world. And so it was just sort of out of this void where I just saw a lack of people standing up and being like Taiwanese food is its own cuisine that I wanted to write this cookbook. Mm -hmm. And before I get uh, further on the book, can you tell me a little bit about your own family's Taiwanese background, just sort of that history a bit? Yeah, we've been in Taiwan for over 200 years. There's like some family records, but it was among one of the first major waves of Chinese immigrants who came over. Mm-hmm. And back then, the first people who came over were mostly men, a lot of them took indigenous wives and it's just to the point where my family has been in Taiwan for so long we don't really know why they came over or if we have other ancestries mixed in our lineage Mm -hmm. but yeah we've always been Taiwanese for as long as anyone alive can remember. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you encountered pulling this volume together? Yeah, a lot of it is just there's not a lot of information on Taiwanese food compared to, you know, classical Chinese cuisine or any other major cuisine because people have never really thought of it as its own food. I was lucky to have, you know, an assistant who acted as a researcher. We like bought like what 20 books and she would just comb through them for facts and fun tidbits and whatnot and put it in a research document for me in English so I could easily and quickly digest it all. And I also worked with an amazing recipe developer who has been cooking for as long as I've been alive. And she's born and raised in Taiwan, has never left the country. And she sort of gave me context about what food was like in the 70s when she grew up. 
So having these resources were so great, but being able to distill it all for a mainstream audience took a lot of work and time. Yeah, I can I can imagine. And do you have any favorite recipes or stories that you want to tease the audience with that you'd like to share? If that's okay. Yeah, of course. Um, so one thing that a lot of people and tourists love when they come to Taiwan is they might go to Ilan and they'll have like an ice cream burrito and it's like a thin spring roll wrapper and you put three scoops of ice cream and some shaved peanuts on top. And originally I was just going to give the recipe for the spring roll and be like, hey, you can just crush peanuts, put sugar and whatever ice cream at the grocery store. But then after talking to Ivy, my co-author, she was like, let's just go all the way and provide the recipe for Taiwanese-style ice cream and how to make this peanut brittle. And Taiwanese ice cream isn't very refined. Back then, they didn't have a lot of milk. Lactose was very just not a big thing in Asian culture, as you know. Mm -hmm. So they thickened it with starch. So we spent... Probably like two days, many days, it seems like it's a blur now, just trying to figure out how to make this ice cream with starch. And if a Westerner tastes it, they'll think this isn't anything special. You know, Western ice cream is milky and like lush, and this is like quite starchy and more of a sorbet. Um, but mm -hmm. we eventually nailed it, and I'm happy with the recipe. And it this is an example of like the lengths we went through to try to recreate what food actually tastes like in Taiwan. Wow. And how long did something like that just for one recipe take? I think we like tested the ice cream recipe six times. And after the fifth time, I was like, okay, we're not doing this anymore. And then <laughs> Ivy came back to me the next week. And she's like, I finally got it. Like I was uh, ready to scrap one of the recipes because you just couldn't figure it out. <laughs> but mm -hmm. eventually we did. That's cool. So a lot of trial and error. So much. So many of the recipes in the book are like that because it doesn't exist in English, really, or even the Chinese language. A lot of the cookbooks in Taiwan and Chinese are just very vague. They'll give you the general ingredients, but it's not very specific. They don't give you exact measurements. So we're really doing a lot of this from scratch. Wow. That sounds like just the stereotypical asking a parent for a favorite recipe, and it's always just, you know, vague quantities of this and that. Yeah. And I, again, like as part of this project, I thought it was really important to preserve and pass down as much information as we could. And a lot of that took, you know, starting from scratch. That's amazing. I mean, it seems like you have a lot on your plate and you and your husband also tend to a subtropical food forest in Taiwan. Is that right? Yeah, it's a purely a hobby. It's nothing fancy. Right now it's overgrown with weeds because we haven't been back for a couple months. <laughs> right. But yeah, we love gardening, love being outside. And um, even if it's just having a little bit of our own lettuce every week or herbs, it really makes a difference in our quality of life. And is that common in in terms of just something that people do, or is this unusual, I guess? It's not common, especially for young people in Taiwan. Most people don't even know where things grow. Right. So no, it's not common. And I guess I'm curious, is that related at all to how climate cuisine was born in terms of just ideas of like 
you know, the, the foods that you grow and, and that kind of thing. How did that podcast come to be? Yeah, so um, like five years ago, many years ago, I got into permaculture, which is it's kind of a gardening philosophy where you're building a garden that lasts throughout the generations and you're prioritizing perennials. And basically, long story short, I lived on a tropical farm in Costa Rica for a month where we lived off of the grid and grew what we ate. And that was sort of a revelation for me. And Climate Cuisine and my gardening hobby sort of arose from that. So Climate Cuisine is a podcast I do with Whetstone Radio. And it's all about talking about crops that grow well in our climate. Global supply chains have made our diets homogenous. And the average consumer is oblivious to the amount of energy and manpower it takes to produce our food. I'm Clarissa Way, and you're listening to Climate Cuisine, a podcast that explores how sustainable ingredients are grown and prepared in similar climate zones around the world. I think so much of the conversation about sustainability is what should we not eat to harm the planet or basically what we shouldn't be doing. But I wanted to approach it from what could we be doing and thinking of it from uh, angle of presence, you know, so much of life these days is going online, and there's this advice that's supposed to apply to everyone in every nation, but that's not true. Like, where you are in the world really should have a factor on what you eat, and the fact that all the restaurants and all the grocery stores sort of sell the same things or have the same carbs and produce really goes to show how out of touch we are with the climate. And so this podcast sort of dives into that on a very micro level, focusing on the ingredients. Basically, my goal is to motivate people to think about where they live and what could they be eating. Mm -hmm. So many ingredients that are familiar to me, I didn't realize, you know, were grown in other parts of the world, let alone used in very different ways, which I found it, you know, just really interesting. How did you choose, I guess, what ingredient or, or crop to focus on? It seems like the options are endless. Yeah, a lot of this, again, is just like personal, a personal hobby of mine. I have tons of permaculture books. I've written about a lot of these farms. Mm -hmm. It's like the same uh, way I found random people to profile in China. It's just I have a hobby. I sort of really get into it and I don't really make money off of it, but I like bookmark all of these interesting topics and eventually I somehow am able to make a story out of it. So it's the same way with plants. Like a lot of these I have a personal relationship with or someone has told me about it and I find it really fascinating. Mm -hmm. I guess in the beginning of your career, did you think you'd set out focusing so much on, on food or was like, was that always the intent or do you feel like you fell into being able to do something that you love as well. Yeah, it's definitely the latter. I did not go into journalism with the intent of doing food. I think I wanted to be like a political reporter, but I quickly realized that hard news and politics and just being on your feet every single day was not the lifestyle I wanted to live. And food sort of allowed me to slow down. And I like the fact that it's more positive. 
Um, I think I like to pursue more positive, happy-go-lucky stories versus things that are wrong with the world. I think it's just better for my mental health. Mm-hmm. And it's just a slower cycle that way. So it was an inadvertent career path. And again, I think in my whole career, I've just followed things I've, I'm interested in or I'm passionate in. And I just sort of go with the flow and I don't really have a target, if that makes sense. I'm not like I'm going to be this in 10 years. I just sort of nurture my passions and hobbies and go from there. Yeah, I I, I really like the idea of just there isn't enough positive stories about a lot of these things that, you know, well, especially given the current state of the world and, and politics can get so... I guess, heavy and, and dark these days. But I did want to shift gears away from food a little bit. And uh, first on the pandemic, over the last couple of years, I've written 150 stories about some aspect of, of COVID-19. And one of the things that really interested me, especially in the early days, was the way different countries handled it and and how some countries were, for the most part, living in what felt like an alternate universe of normal life. And not because they were ignoring the deaths around them, but because there were so few or no cases, you know, to begin with. And I was noticing like Taiwan had only hit over a thousand cases a year later in March 2021. And Canada hit that number within days of the World Health Organization even calling it a pandemic. You kind of wrote about what it's been like over the past two years and how things have evolved in your New Yorker piece. Can you share a little bit more about that and and people's feelings about this shift or evolution? Yeah, I mean, for most of the pandemic, Taiwan lived in this beautiful little bubble where we didn't have to think about it, Mm -hmm. whereas the rest of the world has constantly had to think about it. And even right before I left Taiwan this summer, I was we were self-isolating. And ironically, I got COVID right when we got to Sweden, like after a wedding ceremony, I got it and it wasn't a big deal. You know, we're fully vaccinated. It was just, what, three, four days of mild symptoms. It was over with. We were with our friends. They weren't worried because they had gotten it and no one else got sick. Just um, me and my husband. And that was sort of like a wake up call to me, even though I intuitively knew it. But just the fact that Taiwanese people are so sheltered and so scared of this virus. And it really is time to move on and you know, integrate back with the rest of the world. But I also get it. Like, it's such a culture shock for us to let the floodgates open and pretend everything is normal and get a positive COVID test. And even though I have tons of friends in Taiwan who have gotten COVID now, people are still really scared. So it's a a weird reality for sure. And do you feel like the initial approach was the right one. And it's just more of a sense that, you know, we've kind of passed a certain point or, or what's your view on, on how it was handled initially that has created the sort of bubble mentality? Yeah, definitely. I think the Taiwanese government did a really great job containing the pandemic in the beginning. Um, and But that also has a lot to do with the public being willing to cooperate, high level of trust, And just the fact that we're a much smaller country than, say, the United States or Canada. Right. So there's a lot of factors at play. But yeah, 2020 was really blissful in Taiwan. Like, we really did not have to deal with a lot of things other people had to deal with. 
but now it's 22 and you know Taiwan is trying to find our way out of it but wearing masks even outdoors is still mandatory just like ridiculous to so many other people outside of Taiwan but it is a culture shock and eventually we'll get there but I don't think people in Taiwan are quite ready yet right and the other thing I wanted to touch on was just the current political climate in Taiwan just between some of the the changing dynamics during the Trump presidency to the pandemic and the scrutiny around the way the WHO may have ignored Taiwan's early warnings. And I guess, you know, now just some of the parallel concerns some people have following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Does it feel like there's any kind of like shift happening in terms of Taiwan's place in the world? Or is this somehow, you know, wishful thinking perhaps by certain groups? I think Taiwan has definitely gotten more international visibility within the last, say, five years because of the heightened political tensions. Life in Taiwan has not changed at all. If you ask the average Taiwanese person or any of my relatives, they'll be like, there's always, there has always been conflict between Taiwan and China. This doesn't change anything. But on a global scale, there has, you know, China has been ramping up tensions to unprecedented levels. Um, they've been sending planes into our ADIZ, just air identification zone, record numbers all the time. Um, and people are concerned. And you see that in who we elect. After the whole Hong Kong protest, Tsai Ing-wen won her second term with a historical number of votes. Like no other politician has ever gotten that many votes. So you do see a heightened sense of Taiwanese identity and a heightened sense of people being like, we are not Chinese, we are Taiwanese. Um, and as someone who focuses on food and culture, that has been really interesting to witness. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's temporary or, or do you think this will last perhaps Oh, yeah. I mean, this isn't a phase. I think this the tensions will just go on and, you know, hopefully something doesn't happen. But there really is no going back. Now you have a whole generation of young Taiwanese people who do not like China, who do not see it as a positive place and who see themselves as their own people. And you can't take that away from people. You just can't. And is that causing any sort of generational divide in any way, just perhaps with older generations who, you know, like the status quo or, you know, who maybe came over in the 40s, that kind of thing? Like, is there that kind of tension? Um, so the majority of Taiwanese people want the status quo because it, no matter what their age is, maybe younger people are a little bit more, okay, we're willing to fight. Mm-hmm. But the status quo ensures that there is no conflict and that's the last thing any Taiwanese person wants. Um, but yeah, there is a generational shift in how people see identity. During my parents' generation, they were, as I can quote, you know, my friend who said this, who was born in the 60s, you know, they were brainwashed and thinking that they were Chinese. They learned more about the history of China than they did the history of Taiwan. And then now there has been a conscious effort to decolonize um, Taiwanese history and teach people what the history of Taiwan was and not just China and really take things into perspective. So um, yeah, it's a matter of education and it's a matter of the times we live in. Definitely. I feel like we could talk about food and politics for a long time, but before we wrap up, 
We always like to ask our guests if they have any recommendations in terms of reading and, and self-care tips that they'd like to share. I guess maybe just for myself, I'm currently reading and listening to China Unbound by New Voices founder Joanna Chu. So don't have a lot more to add that hasn't already been said by other people, but I, it's, uh, you know, not surprisingly as good as everyone says it is. So I definitely recommend that. But how about you? Any recommendations or self-care tips? Yeah, I, after a year straight of writing and recipe testing, I finally have had a vacation this summer and it was just lovely to unplug from <laughs> social media and online. I went on a road trip with you know, my girlfriends and they don't use social media and we just hung out and talked and did not log on and that was the best thing I could do for my mental health and I highly, highly recommend it. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people are eager to get on the road this year, especially. And so I, I agree. Clarissa, thank you so much for coming on to our show and good luck with your book. Thank you. And it was so lovely meeting you. Thanks for having me on. Likewise. You've been listening to the New Voices podcast with me, Solarina Ho. This episode was produced by Sagar Ringmar. Audio editing is by Megan Cattell. Intro and outro music is by April Zhu. Follow us on Twitter at New Voices and on Instagram at New Voices underscore network. Support our activities via Patreon. Patrons are invited to play an active role in our community. More information is available on www.patreon.com slash new voices. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.